Happy New Year, Southbridge. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, we're glad you're here today. Um, if today's your first time, I want to welcome you and uh, just say thanks for coming. We're a church that exists to connect people to Jesus for life change. And so if you bump into somebody in the lobby today, maybe just ask them, how has Jesus changed your life? How has he used this church in your life? And uh, hear some of what we're about as a church. It's one of the ways to get to know us, but we're glad that you decided to come. Um, if you're watching online, uh, thank you for watching online. Uh, but th- if you're here today for the first time ever, we just ask you in your worship program, there's a little card. We call it a connection card. It's a way for you to get connected in a, a small way at our church. If you'd fill that out and tell us how you heard about us as a church, then after the service on your way outside the front door, there's a big banner out there. We've got a gift for you to, uh, out there at that door. If you've got a gift on your way in, we've got another gift for you. If you didn't get that gift, we've got two gifts for you. And we also are going to make a donation uh, to a ministry that tries to bless other people. We believe one of the reasons why God has us here on this earth is we're supposed to bless the people that we come into contact with. And so we want to bless you today. If you would fill that card out, even right now, just take it out of the, the worship program, check it out. There's more information about that in there. And uh, tell us how you heard about us. Take it out there and uh, turn it in. And we want to bless you and bless some other folks. And so please feel free to do that. And everybody else, you can use that card um, for lots of different things. You want to get baptized? It's time to get baptized in 2015. Uh, fill that card out. You want a prayer request? You, we've got a team of people that are praying regularly for our church. Fill that card out. Um, just let us know your prayer request, and you'll see some other things that are on there as well. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, we'd love to be able to help you grow in that relationship. And so you can fill that card out as well. Um, but today is a great day, if it is your first time coming to Southbridge, to be here. We're beginning a brand new series. It's a new year. We're starting a new series. And the series we're starting today is called Making the Most Of. And we're going to talk about in this series a bunch of stuff God's entrusted us with. Our time, our talents, our money, our relationships with other people. Really, we're talking about making the most of life. And so today we begin this series. It's going to go for about four or five weeks. And if today's your first time, hopefully you'll stick with us through the series and really get to know us. And today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to get a head start and go there, it's in the back of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll start the message this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to gather in your name. And thank you for being able to be encouraged just by hearing each other sing this morning. Songs already by hands that have been shook and uh, just blessings that have been said and prayers that have been prayed over people and for people and God I pray that you'd uh, meet with us this morning I pray as we open up your word that you'd speak into our hearts I pray that you'd speak into our lives that you would challenge and change the way that 2015 would be lived I pray if there's someone who needs salvation today that today they would be the day they would trust your son Jesus and for some of us who need to refocus you'd refocus us for those of us who need to be encouraged encourage us God just change us God, show us um, that we're the clay and you're the potter and will you shape us and mold us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it was uh, 6.30 a.m. at my house and the phone rang. The phone rings at 6.30 a.m. That's usually not good news. There's kind of a general etiquette in our culture. You don't call anyone before 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning if you're doing business or just saying hi or setting up a meeting. You just don't do that. And so you call at 6.30 a.m. because something's wrong. So it's 6.30 a.m. at our house. My wife's cell phone is the one that's ringing. She goes over and she grabs it and she sees that on the cell phone it's her mom calling. She says, it's my mom. First words were, mom, what's wrong? And then she walked out of the room and I was in our bedroom where the phone was ringing and, and I let her have a couple minutes before I came out there. But when I came out, the news that she was receiving on the other end from her mom was shocking. For some in our family, it was devastating. And it was very unexpected. The news she received was that her cousin, who's only 41 years old, had died earlier that morning, about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. At that moment, her time was up. Today we talk about time. Something we oftentimes don't think a lot about because we're living in it. It's just happening. And we might plan out how we use our money and we think about some of those things, but time, oftentimes we don't think about time until 
we're out of it. Today we're talking about time and how we're commanded to make the most of our time, to redeem our time. Something that sometimes we'll cry out when we get towards the end, like the psalmist in Psalm 89, that we cry out about the time, that there's not that much of it. But when we're in it, it seems like there's a lot. But towards the end, we might say something like this. Remember how fleeting is my life, how short it is. For what futility have you created all men? Why are we here for just, just a short time? James says it like this. Don't say you're going to go here or there, today or tomorrow, and do business, for you don't even know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what's going to happen today. Your life is just a vapor. It might vanish. It's short. We don't have a lot of it. We only get one life to live. So how will we make the most of it? Today we begin this series talking about making the most of. We're talking about making the most of life. We're talking about making the most of our relationships. We're talking about making the most of our money, making the most of our time, making the most of our talent. But think about how time is unique out of all those things. It's the great equalizer. Everyone gets the same amount each day. We don't all have the same amount of friends. We don't all have the same amount of money. We don't all have the same amount of talent. But we will all have the same amount of hours today, Lord willing, if we make it through this day. If you think back on 2014, we all had the same amount of days. We all had the same amount of hours, the same amount of minutes, the same amount of seconds. And we're at a unique time of the year right now where we look back on 2014 and we look forward to 2015. And let me just ask you to think back on 2014 for a moment. Because all of us lived 365 days. We all had the same amount of hours, the same amount of minutes, the same amount of seconds. And let me just ask you a couple questions about 2014. How did it go? You might have some good memories, you might have some rough patches that you go through, and some of those things probably pop into your mind, but when you think about the time as a whole, did you waste it? Did you redeem it? Did you make the most of it? There's probably a mixture of both in there. As you think about 2014 and how you lived it, is eternity different because of the way that you lived in 2014? How did it go? And we're at a unique time where we look forward to 2015, because 2014 is a memory now, no matter what. 2015 is our opportunity. 2015 is where we have the opportunity to still make the most of what God's placed before us. And so how will we make the most of our time? That's the question today. How will you, in the days ahead, in the time that you have before you, in these moments right now, in the rest of this day, and Lord willing for all of us, the rest of this year, how will you make the most of your time? Robert Moffat, a famous missionary, once said this, We shall have all of eternity in which to celebrate our victories but only one short hour, that's our life, before the sunset in which to win them. We only have one life. How will we make the most of it? That's what we're going to talk about today in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have them. We give them away for free over here on this table. Um, NIV is the version that I read from, but a lot of people read from the English Standard Version and New American Standard Version. Um, They're all good translations. And I'll be reading today from Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start reading in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And the context for what's happening in Ephesians chapter 5 is really the whole book because we're towards the end of the book in Ephesians chapter 5. So let me give you just an overview of what's happening in Ephesians. Ephesians is a book that breaks down right down the middle. The first three chapters are the theological foundation. You don't get commandments in the first three chapters. You get a bunch of truth. And chapter 1 talks about how our identities change. It talks about how we're adopted into God's family. That God picks us, he's chosen us, and he pulls us out of darkness, out of a situation where we're separated from him and without hope and without God, and brings us into a relationship with him. That changes everything. We become his son, his daughter, depending on our gender, and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. So you're the son of the king of kings or the daughter of the lord of lords. And you know what it says? It says that you're going to get everything. And so we were going to talk about things that we've been entrusted with in this series, but here's the reality for every believer in Jesus Christ. You get it all. 
You have an inheritance that's coming, and you're going to get all of it at one point. And he talks about that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are made alive in Christ. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't anything we did. It wasn't that we cleaned ourselves up. It wasn't that we became more religious. It says it's by this word called grace. Grace is we're given what we don't deserve. You're saved by grace through faith. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're given this gracious opportunity to take this gift that's being offered to you. You don't do anything to get it. And so you can't do anything to brag about it. And then God has a plan for your life. Chapter 3 culminates, it kind of comes to a climax with this prayer that Paul prays in verses 14 through 21, where Paul prays, I want you to know the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ. And then fullness is a theme in Ephesians. And so you see God filling things continually in Ephesians. It's not the theme, but it's a theme in Ephesians. He says, and I want you, limited person, human being, finite, to be filled with the fullness of God, infinite, not possible, and so in case you think, well, God can't do that, that's impossible. Then he says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, God does the impossible. And then chapter 4 starts to talk about what are the implications of that? How then should we live? If these things are true in chapters 1 through 3, then how do we live? Chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, and this is the theme of the rest of the book. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. This isn't a, call, a specific calling for you, a specific calling for you, a specific calling for you, a specific calling for me. This is all Christians. This is the calling that we've received. We've been adopted into the family. We have this identity. And so then how are we supposed to then live? Chapter 4 says that. And then you get command after command after command after command in chapters 4 through 6. The immediate context where we're at is chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1 gives us our context there. In chapter 5 and verse 1, it says to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. What we said in chapter 1, you were adopted. Have you ever heard somebody say, you're just like your parents? You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. You're a mimic. You're a photocopy. You're just like them. That's what's being said here. If your heavenly father is this way, then you should be just like your heavenly father. So how do you do that? Well, a big part of it is how you use your time. That's what chapter 5, verse 15 and 16 tell us. Lord willing, I'm going to read all the way through verse 21 this morning, but verses 15 and 16 say this. Be very careful then how you live, because you got to live according to the calling you have. Chapter 4, verse 1, you're supposed to be an imitator of your father. Chapter 5, verse 1, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. It's an interesting reason why. But you read this verse, and I was talking to a, a friend who was wanting to know how to know different translations and things like that before the service this morning even, and it's interesting. You don't have to know Greek to be able to figure out whether somebody's... Uh, done something different than all the other translators in the Bible. You just start reading different translations. And if you get online, um, you can find different websites that will show you all the different translations. But it's interesting. The NIV here has actually interpreted this verse, not translated it. And I'll show you what I mean. If you go to some of the other translations, you'll see that opportunity is not in the text. It's called time. King James says it like this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The English Standard Version says to make the best use of of our time, making the best use of time because the days are evil. The New American Standard, which is a very literal translation, says this, making the most of your time, just like our series, because the days are evil. And that's what we're talking about today. Redeeming the time, making most of the opportunity, making best use of our time. That's what it all means, the same thing. And here's the great thing about the Bible. It doesn't just tell us to do something. It tells us how to do it. And what we see in this passage of scripture is from different commands that are in here, at least three different ways, we're to make the most of the time that God's given us. The first one's back in verse 15, when it said to be very careful. We're supposed to be careful with the time that God's given us. To use great care. And for those of you who take notes, that's our first point. 
we must be careful with our time. With the time that God has entrusted to us, we must use great care. That word for care means to have great attention, precision, detail. You know what care is if you just think about the things that you care about on this earth. And you show different levels of care based on the importance of the thing. So if I'm in my kitchen and I'm carrying eggs through the kitchen, I don't want to drop eggs. I don't want to break the eggs. I don't want to make a mess. I paid money for the eggs. But if I drop an egg, it's not that big of a deal. So every once in a while, I'll be in the kitchen. What could I do and not drop the egg? You ever try to juggle the eggs? But, so I care, but I don't... I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Now, if I was carrying a newborn baby through the kitchen, I'd probably handle the baby with different care than I'd handle the eggs. I'm probably... Oh, this is a cute... I wonder if I... Ah, probably not going to do that with the baby because it's life. I was text messaging with a friend when I was writing this message this week. And uh, he's an Ohio State fan. I'm sorry for those of you who love Alabama. And uh, we were just text messaging about football and text messaging about life. And it made me think of a story he told me one time. He lives up in Ohio, pastors a church in, in Cleveland. And he was battling cancer. And uh, he went to a hospital. He felt like the Lord led him, not to MD Anderson, but a small hospital in Houston. And he was there. And he had such a hard time finding a match with other people. He was doing a stem cell treatment. They had to use his own stem cells, which a few weeks earlier they told him they couldn't use. And God miraculously allowed them to use the stem cells, pulled them out of his own body. But he was so weak, couldn't have any infection come around him. And he said the doctors came in. He was sitting in this chair. He was all groggy. They were about to do this treatment. The doctors came in and the nurses came in. They were carrying three bags that had his stem cells in them. And they dropped one of the bags. And he said, I just sat there. I couldn't say much or do much. But I thought, that's my life. You just dropped, you were just careless with my life. They couldn't use it once it dropped on the ground. When we talk about time, we're talking about our most precious commodity. It's something we take for granted. But Paul tells us here, if we're going to make the most of it, if we're going to redeem it, if we're going to make the best use of it, it won't happen by accident. It must happen with great attention, with precision, with care. And so how do we do that? We'll go back to the verse, verse 15. It tells us to be very careful, but it doesn't just tell us to be very careful. It tells us how to be very careful. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And what we'll see through this passage is three different commands that show us, three different ways to be careful, really. And they use these not this way, but this way statements, not but. And so when you're reading the Bible, a lot of times you'll look for repetition. And so throughout this passage, it says not this, but this, not this, but this, not as unwise, but as wise. And then in, the next, in verse 17, it says not as a fool, but understanding the Lord's will. And then verse 18, it says not drunk with wine, but instead filled with the spirit of God. Not this, but this. And here we've got not unwise, but wise. And so, okay, we've got to live wise. What does it mean to be wise? What many of us think of when we talk about being wise is we think of someone that's smart. Those are the wise people. So they've got to ask smart people questions. They've got to have degrees or they've got to you know, memorize a bunch of stuff, have a high IQ, whatever it is that we think of as wise. But the Bible gives us a different definition of wise. They have to have understanding. It's not that they're dumb, but it goes beyond head knowledge. And what the Bible actually defines as wisdom, we read through books that are called wisdom literature in the Bible. The book of Job is wisdom literature. Song of Solomon is wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, jo- uh, Psalm, Proverbs, those are wisdom books. If you want to gain wisdom, read those books. Read the Proverbs. There's enough Proverbs you can read one a day, all through the month. And then you read these things, you gain wisdom, because it's wisdom literature. And what is it? It's a way to live your life. It's not just that you know information. It's a skill for living your life. 
And so you take the information you have and then you live it in a certain way in light of what you know to be true about God. And so the wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world will tell you, you've got to get everything you can get, you've got to do everything you can do. The wisdom of God tells us that we live our lives fully surrendered to him and he guides and directs our lives according to his will. And you've got to be careful how you use the time. He's under control. He's going to guide your time. The Proverbs say it like this in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that we begin by surrendering to him. That's wisdom. And it says in our passage to live wise, fully surrendered to God then, not as unwise. And so what is unwise? Well, sometimes we think of unwise as somebody who does dumb things. So sometimes you'll see somebody and you think they like wisdom. They're a fool. And so I, one of the things I like to do periodically, I'll read them to my wife even, is uh, read about dumb criminals. You, there is uh, just a full, there's a, so much material out there, by the way. If you just start reading headlines or typing dumb criminals on Google, I read one this week of a guy who went to rob a place, 18 years old, so hadn't lived a lot of life yet, 18 years old, he breaks into a place, tries to rob it, the clerk is there, the clerk says that she can't open the safe because the manager's not there, which is pretty shrewd of her, I thought, and the guy says, okay, give me a call when the manager comes back in and leaves his cell phone number. She calls the police. The way the story ends, is going, she calls the police. The police, oh, we're here. The manager's here now. Come back. He comes in and gets arrested. So that's just terrible. It's dumb, dumb. That's just dumb, okay? That's not, we're not talking about that. We, a lot of times that's what we think of as fool. Here's the reality. When you look at the Bible, there are a lot of people with high IQs that are really smart that are fools. Because the Bible defines a fool like this. Psalm 14, verse 1. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the wise person is the person who surrendered to God. The fool says there is no God. Now, we can be like, well, I'm at church, so I think there's a God, or I believe in God, or I've done this, or whatever things we fill in the blank. But there's a lot of people who live their lives each moment of their time other than while they're at church, as if there's no God. That is a practical fool. And what God says in the Bible is a lot of the things that we consider foolish on this world are God's wisdom. A lot of things that we think are wise are foolish in God's sight. 1 Corinthians talks about this. You read through the whole chapter, but I'll read you a segment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, because these are people that they loved wisdom, and so whoever had the most, these are the people that are arguing about, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I follow, and they, all this wisdom, they want these people. And Paul says this to them, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world by becoming human and coming here and allowing himself to be murdered? That sounds like foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Different than either. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, that's by his grace, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble births. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So be a fool for Christ. Be fully surrendered to Christ. It seems like foolishness to this world who thinks this is all there is. But it's the wisdom of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so live your life fully surrendered to Christ. You can't understand this if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ already. In fact, I remember 
the first person I ever saw surrender their lives to Christ, the first time I was physically present, other than myself, um, seeing someone trust Jesus. It was a woman, she was an older woman, her name is Margie, she's 70 years old, she's a science teacher, and had gone on like archaeology digs and spent her whole life really believing in evolution and following the thought process of evolution. She started going to a Bible study on creation and then came to the conclusion that all those things I've been looking at all my life, they really point me to God, not away from God. And she began to believe in God. And the guy who was teaching the, the Bible study on creation, it was a mentor of mine, he called me up. He said, do you want to go over to a, a woman's house and see her trust Christ? And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So he called me up, came over and picked me up. We went over to this lady's house. I shared my story of how I had placed my faith in Christ. He shared some Bible verses about how Jesus was the atonement, the payment for her sin. And she ended up praying to receive Jesus as her Savior. But what stuck out to me was this. It was that when she was done praying to receive Jesus, we were, said some nice things and prayed with her and shared some other verses about how once you trust Jesus, you know, nothing can happen to change that. And uh, went through some of those things. And then when we were leaving the house, she just hugged me. And she held on real tight. And she looked at me, 70-year-old woman. I'm 18 years old. And she says, you have your whole life to live for Christ. Now, this is a woman that came to the realization at 70 that Christ is everything, that Christ is her only hope, that Christ is the only way, that Christ means all of it in the earth. And so she surrendered her life fully to Christ. And then at 70, she looks at this 18-year-old, and she comes to the realization she spent most of her life already. She says, you have your whole life to live for Christ. Redeem the time. That's real wisdom. She had lived her 70 years up to this point, what looked like wisdom to our world. And then came to the point at 70 to realize God's wisdom. Fully surrendered to Christ. And redeem the time. Make the most of every opportunity. Make best use of the time. But it won't just happen. You have to be intentional about it. Probably one of the most influential American-born theologians ever was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote a bunch of resolutions. And I know this is a time of year where we write a lot of different resolutions. If you Google, you can find all of his resolutions. He wrote them when he was in his 20s. He died when he was 54 years old. I want to share a few of them with you. This is a guy who accomplished a lot. Like I said, one of the most influential theologians ever, probably the most influential American-born theologian ever. And he says this in some of his resolutions. Resolution number five, he resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way possible. Resolution number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. As long as I have here, I'm going to do it with everything I have. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do were at the last hour of my life. Another, will you consider church father-ish, at least from our time period, because it's so long ago for us, is one of the reformers. His name was Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon actually kept a journal of every wasted moment he had in his life. And at the end of each day, he would confess it before God. Can you imagine doing that? Just wasted time, doing, and fill in the blank with all the things we waste time with. Make the most of, redeem the time, is the idea. Why? Go back to the verse. It gives us an interesting reason. Verse 16. I don't know if this is the reason I would give, but it's the reason that God gives. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. What does he mean by that? The days are evil. I mean, yeah, it's wicked. It's wicked now. It's wicked then. It's not an, really a moral statement, though. The days are bad. It's fun. We live in a fallen world. It's a broken place. It's not just about doing wicked things. So we can talk about, sometimes you hear people say statements like this. I mean, things are just getting worse and worse. I don't know if that's true. Because you look at the way things were in the Bible. They were sacrificing babies to a God named Moloch. So they thought that somehow that brought blessing into their lives. 
They're killing babies. We had about 6,000 of them killed in Wake County this past year for abortion. God of convenience, maybe? Is it really different? It manifested different. Sexual morality, it's rampant. I don't think I need to talk about it. You just know that it's bad now. Is it worse? Homosexuality is not a new thing, by the way, although the media would like us to think it is. All the stuff that we see happening, it was happening then. And so when Paul says here, the days are evil, make the most of the time because the days are evil, what does that mean? So that we don't do more bad stuff? We can waste our lives doing sin. That's possible. But here's what's really being said here. You live in a broken and a fallen place. Everything in this place is going to point you, distract you away from submitting your life to Christ and using your time towards the kingdom. The word redeem means to buy back. It's oftentimes used of slaves, bought out of slavery and then taken into freedom, taken out of a negative circumstance and brought into a positive one. To redeem the time, to buy back the time, to make the most of the time here means not allowing the time to be robbed from you so that you waste it, piddling it away on non-kingdom things. You live your life fully surrendered to Christ. Be careful because there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things in our time. There's a lot of things that will take us away from being fully surrendered to Christ. And no one knows how long they have. Like that verse I mentioned at the beginning of this message from James. James chapter 4. James says this. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. and be gone. My wife got that 6.30 a.m. phone call. None of us knew that the time was up for her cousin. Think about what you saw in the news this week. 162 people got on a plane in Asia. Did any of them know when they stepped onto that plane that would be the last step that they took on this earth? We don't know. We don't know how much time we have. And we oftentimes don't think about it until the time is up. How many people on their deathbed will give everything for just another moment? I promise you, every person in hell right now would give anything to be where you and I are at, regardless of whatever our circumstances are in life. They'd give everything, anything, to have just one more moment. And I know that's true. It says so in the Bible. Luke chapter 16. There's a guy who's a rich man. His name was Lazarus. He didn't waste his life on immorality. We talk about the days being evil. You know what he wasted his life on? This world's philosophy. Just get a bunch of stuff and just satisfy yourself here. Self-indulgence. And so he's a rich man. He, didn't, he wasn't denied anything on this earth. He had all kinds of stuff. It wasn't that he was such a bad guy. It wasn't that he was so wicked. He just didn't have Christ. And so he goes to hell. And we see him cry out from hell for just a moment of relief. And when he realizes that's not possible, you know what he says? Can I just go back and tell my loved ones about this place so they don't end up here? Anyone in hell right now would give everything to have what you and I have. So are we making the most? When we come to the end, will we think we wasted our lives? That's essentially what this passage is saying. Don't waste your life. You only get one. Be very careful. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Redeeming the time. Why? Because the time will be taken from you a lot faster than you realize. Redeem the time. Make the most of the time. Make best use of your time. I was talking this past week to our uh, former youth pastor, Josh Tovey. He's now a church planner up in Michigan, planting a church to connect people to Jesus for life change. They'll be starting pretty soon. You'll be praying for them. Same Redemption Church. And uh, there's a small group of people get together and start just asking them, how's God working? How's he changing people's lives? And one of the stories he told me was uh, they were talking to their group about how hell is real. And uh, one of their pastors, they've got a worship pastor who was out, out to eat with his wife. 
and they were sitting there, and I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant before where you can, you're not trying to eavesdrop on somebody, but you can hear what they're saying, and sometimes people are loud, and he said this, this table was talking, and they were talking about politics, they were talking about the world, and all that was wrong with the world, but you could tell, that, and they were talking about all these bad things and things that were seen in the news, they didn't have the hope of Christ with the answers that they were giving for those things. And it was just the worship pastor and his wife, and they were sitting there talking, and he's hearing this stuff, you know, kind of trying not to listen and engage with his wife, and then finally he just said to his wife, if hell is real, why wouldn't I go talk to those people? But he knew that it'd be awkward. Like, we all know, you're going to go over there and you're going to acknowledge, I just heard everything you were talking about, but, I, but I'm not a freak, I promise, you know. And then you're going to bring up Jesus, which then you're going to be like, whoa, where's the poster board, you know, and all that stuff's going to And so you're thinking about all these things as you're sitting there, and then his wife just says, listen, I'm going to go to the restroom. When I come back, well, you just kind of get your thoughts together. We'll decide what to do. She comes back from the restroom and goes over to him and says, hi, I'm Steve. And starts to share his story and the church that they're starting and starts to talk to him about Jesus. And they end up sharing some personal things that are happening in their life. They'd like him as a pastor to, to pray about. And they didn't trust Christ right there, but he didn't miss the opportunity. How many opportunities do we miss? Not just to tell people about Jesus. How many opportunities do we miss to be there with our kids? How many opportunities do we miss to pray for another believer that needs prayer? How many opportunities do we miss to tell someone who's on their way to hell that hell is real? Be careful. That's the warning. Make the most of every opportunity, the opportunities that are brought before us. Not as unwise, but as wise. And the next, not as, but this statement has to do with our calling. Not only are we to be careful, but we've got to live in the calling that God has for us. So if you're taking notes, you write that down. We must be careful with the time that God's given us. We must also live in the calling that God has for us. That would be our second point. The careful and then calling. And the calling here is referred to in this passage as the Lord's will. And the Lord's will is talking about here is not a specific one to each one of us. It's a general one to everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. And look what it says in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. Sounds a lot like unwise. Do not be foolish. Don't live like there's no God. But understand, so there is a mental element to this, what the Lord's will is. A lot of times when we talk about the Lord's will, we think of a mystic experience that we're going to have that's going to tell us where to work next. Or whether we should get married, or what major to have, or how many kids to have one day, or what color our house should be, or whatever thing it's going to be. There's some decisions we have to make in the future. That's not what it's talking about here in this passage. It's not talking about figuring out your next day, and three days from now, and in the next stage of your life. Remember, the context is always key when you're interpreting verses. And the context for what we just read, and redeeming the time, what the NIV translated as opportunity. And all those other translations said the word time. It comes from a Greek term, kairos. Not the Greek term, chronos, where we get the word chronology, where you think about sequential time, like hours on a clock or seconds. Chronos means that. Chronos means hours, minutes, seconds, days. Kairos means seasons of time. It's a season of life. We're not all in the same season of life. Some of us are going from junior high to high school, and some of us are going from high school to college, and some people are single, and some people are married, and some people are empty nest, and some people are divorced, and some people are in a job, some people are without a job, and we're all in different seasons of life. And so what is the Lord's will in this season of life for you? In this current season? Not the future one, not the next one, but what about right here and right now? And we're all in different seasons. So as a single mom, as a stay-at-home mom, as a person working at GS, you know, GSK, at IBM, at whatever the other initials are, you can think of it, all the places around here. As a business owner, as an employee, 
in this season of life. See, our tendency is to think about the next season. And what does God want me to do to make decisions that are going to impact the next place? And you know what ends up happening? We're never fully present at the place that we are. And so then guess what we do? We miss the time. We waste the time. What's the Lord's will in this season of life? Being present. Something I'm learning right now in my life. And it's, God's done a lot towards the end of 2014 to, to teach me about that. One of my goals in 2014 was to run a, a marathon. And I didn't do it because some noble, like, here's this big task. I felt like I was fat, if I can be real candid with you. And uh, I thought, I need to lose some weight. If I do this, it'll give me discipline and structure. And I'm an A-type personality. And so my goal is, you know, to get to the certain weight. And then it's like, was the marathon even necessary? Because I already did the, got lost the weight doing the training. It takes about four months of training to get ready. And uh, I remember uh, the day came for our race. We had done, I took my wife into running the race with me, and we had done four months of training. And then we had a friend who's an elite athlete. And uh, she's run uh, Ironmans and done all this different stuff. And she was kind of giving us some counsel through the, the whole deal. And she gave us this one bit of counsel the day before the race. She said, take it all in. You'll only get one first marathon. Take it all in. And now my tendency is to be, all right, we've got 26.2 miles. Here's the time I want to get done. And all I'm thinking about is the finish line from the moment that I start. But something happened that day. And some of it had to do with that counsel. Remember when we started the race, I just started looking around and thinking, it's happening. Like, we're running the race. And then there are people playing music. And I would see their faces. And it was like I really saw who the people were that were there. I was reading the signs. And some of them were funny. Some were very inappropriate. Some of them were encouraging. And some of them weren't. And I was reading all the signs and hearing all the sounds and taking it in. I remember at about mile eight, I'm running. And something happened. It was like body snatchers. My wife became the driven one. And I was kind of like, how's it going? You know, what's going to DJs. I'm going, hey, how are you doing? So we're going through the thing. Uh, when we would practice together, we'd go running together. My wife would like yell at horses. Hi, horses. She's like super cheery. And I'm out there saying, hey, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And she's going, we got to go. Like, just keep moving. And I remember at mile eight going, see all that water? We were running by this river. I said, I'm going to picture that when I'm laying on the couch tonight, feeling like death, laying on the couch tonight, watching football. And she looked at me and she said, what are you talking about? Laying on the couch? We're at mile eight. Like, we got a long ways to go. And we just kept running. I remember one, each, there were four miles I prayed for each one of my kids. There was one mile where it was like God just brought different ones that people in, in this church that uh, he just laid on my heart that I started praying things for you guys. And it was like I enjoyed every moment of it. I remember getting to mile 16 and uh, two of my friends were there, Mark Luck and Bill, a guy who goes to our church, and Jason Tovey. They drove two and a half hours to come up there and see me. I was so encouraged at that moment. They probably carried me for another mile and just running through this place. But I remember mile 22 the most vividly. Because I ran by this guy. He was coaching a bunch of people that were running by me. And I was at a place, I was enjoying it so much. Like, I'm super competitive. I was so excited. I was, like, cheering for people when they'd run past me. Hey, you're doing great. Like, smoking me. And I was just enjoying it, taking it all in. I remember mile 22, though, there's this guy. And he's a coach, and he's yelling, I'm not going to let you fail. Failure's not an option, saying all that kind of talk. And I, and I remember my first thought was, whatever, dude. Where are you going to be in five minutes? Like, you're not going to be helping me. And then I saw the sign for 22. It's 22nd mile. And it was like the Lord just showed me, I'm doing this. The Lord was doing it. And I said, you're doing this. And I became overwhelmed with emotion. And my chin started to shake, and I was doing everything I could, not for tears to start dripping out of my face and... I was there. It was different for me. It was in the moment. And then people asked me afterwards how it went. And I wasn't really thinking about time. And I wasn't thinking about it. I, was, I just said, uh, my answer was, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. What if you live life like that? Like in it, all of it. And you, you, you took in the faces and the people and the relationships and the moments and the moments the Lord gave you. And Jim Elliott, famous missionary, was killed at a young age, said this. 
wherever you are, be all there. And then get this, live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. So what is the will of God? What's Paul talking about here in this verse when he says, don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. So what is the Lord's will? If it's not my future, what is the Lord's will? Well, what you do is you go through Ephesians and look everywhere it says something about God's will. Or anywhere there's wisdom type language, because we're talking about not being unwise, but being wise. Where's the wisdom language? Where's God's will? And you know what it's talking about every time in Ephesians? It's God's saving plan for you. It says in chapter 1, pull up the verses we have here. In chapter 1, it talks about God's wisdom, verses 7 through 9. It talks about the will of God, and it's talking about a saving plan. Listen, in him we have redemption. That's the saving plan. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom. That's his wisdom and understanding. So it was his wisdom, his understanding that he would do what's foolish to take people who don't deserve salvation, to give them salvation. It's called grace. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Later in chapter 1, he's praying a prayer. In verse 17, in this prayer, he starts to talk about this saving plan, talking about God's wisdom, God's will. I keep asking, this is Paul saying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I want you to know him. I want you to know his will. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. This is the saving plan to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. And verse 19, and I pray that you would know the power of Christ. Do you understand the power that would take someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins, make them alive? Like that whole turn in water to wine, that's nothing. He's taking someone who's the exact thing that God hates, that God's wrath is poured out on, and making them the exact thing that God loves. Taking them and making them from sin to making them righteous. I hope that you would know God's saving plan. And so, you're in this kairos, this season of life. Whatever your season of life is. Unemployed, employed. Stay-at-home mom, at work. Single mom, married. Married in a good marriage, married in a bad marriage. Whatever your stage of life. How is God revealing his saving plan through that? How's he revealing it to you in your kairos, your season of life? How's he revealing it through your employer? How's he revealing it through your kids? How's he revealing it through your college classes? How's he revealing it through your relationships? And how does he want to reveal it through you to others? Because you're part of their season of life. And so how does he want to reveal his saving plan to you? How does he want to reveal his saving plan through you? That's God's calling on your life at this season. But it's not just his calling. That's not the only thing we need to know to redeem the time. It's not just that we be careful, but you look at the last part of this passage, is that we be under control, and it's under God's control. It says that we be filled with the Spirit, or it could be translated, be filled by the Spirit, with the triune God, not just the Spirit of God, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what ends up being talked about here is control. So we talk about care. We talk about calling. And then verse 18 talks about control. Look at how Paul says it. Verse 18, he says, Do not, not this, but this, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Interesting that he added that little parenthetical statement, which leads to a wasted life. Instead, but be filled with the Spirit. So why does Paul start off here talking about not getting drunk on wine? It's not that he was not talking about wine coolers because they're not powerful enough, or not because he's not talking about beer. He's just like, don't get drunk with alcohol. Is Paul anti-alcohol? This is just a good place to wedge it in? No. Ask most people. Believer, not a believer, 
most people will tell you getting drunk is a bad idea. But most people understand that alcohol can have an effect on us. That's why we call it being under the influence, where it changes the way we behave, makes us more transparent, uh, removes some inhibitions. That's why some people do it, because they want to be more themselves. They want to be more vulnerable, and they don't know how to do it. and They feel so insecure, and so they use alcohol. Changes that will make decisions we wouldn't normally make. That's why people realize it's dangerous. So we make decisions we wouldn't normally make. Because we're under the control of something else. Could say, he could have said here, uh, don't be controlled by envy. You ever hear somebody say the statement, you're filled with envy? Then you know that that envy is driving their decision making. Don't be filled with rage. We're talking about road rage. You know that it's changing the way you view every circumstance. It's changing the decisions you make. You're under the influence of rage or envy. And you can fill in the blank. Greed, fear, love, joy, all those things. If you use any of those words, you know what we're talking about. Because you're filled with those things, it changes how you live. And so Paul's saying here, don't be filled with alcohol, how that controls you. But be filled with God, who controls you. That's what you're under the control of. Are you under the control of God? You want to redeem the time? Then God has to be the one who's in control of your life. It can't be you, can't be greed, can't be rage, can't be envy, can't be alcohol, can't be any of those things, it's going to be God. So how do you know if God's in control of your life? Well, the passage tells us in an interesting way not only how to be filled with the Spirit, but what it looks like when we're filled with the Spirit. Both things are happening in what's being said. He's telling us how to be filled with the Spirit and what it looks like if we're filled with the Spirit. And he gives us three things in the rest of this passage. One is that we're singing. It doesn't say anything about whether we have ability to sing, but we have a joy in our hearts that we want to express through the spoken word. And we sing to the Lord and so that other people will hear. It's one of the things I love about our singing even this morning, to be able to hear each other sing. So I hear someone else singing. I know that they're saying these things about God. They believe them too. That encourages me as a believer. And so it says here to encourage one another with our singing, but then also to be thankful. It's the opposite of pride. That we think we deserve stuff. That all of it comes to me because of I'm awesome, because of my work, because of my talent, because of my whatever. No, you realize it all comes from God. And to be submissive, to be submissive to one another in every relationship. We're continually looking out for the other person. We want to do what's best for the other person. We want to submit, just like Christ did, who is the head, who is the ultimate, washed his disciples' feet, died on the cross for people who would reject him. It's a missive. So you see it here in this passage. I'll read it to you. I just told it to you. It says in verse 19, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, scholars debate about what the differences are. The psalms are the Old Testament psalms. Hymns are songs about God. and Spiritual songs are experiential type songs. We don't know. They're all spiritual Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. And so you're, did you notice it says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs so we'd be able to hear each other. But then we're singing ultimately in our hearts to the Lord. It says, always giving thanks. Opposite of pride. To God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so if you want to know whether you are under the control of God, then ask yourself, am I singing? Do I want to sing? Am I thankful? Am I grateful? Do I have, generally speaking, do I have a grateful heart? It says here, for everything. Now, some people have misinterpreted this passage and been, you know, some terrible abuse will happen and they're supposed to say, you know, God, thank you for this abuse. You're not thankful for things that God hates, but you realize that even in those situations that God can bring good, so you're thankful to God for his sovereignty. Type herbally here to be thankful for everything. If you're thankful in all circumstances, ultimately that God's in control. You're showing that he's in control. 
Are you submissive? Submissive to other people. To the people that you have to have everybody be submissive to you is because you don't ultimately trust that God's the one that's in control. But can you be like Christ? And so what you start to see is people that are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit that led Jesus onto the desert, the Spirit that led Jesus when he was being tempted, the Spirit that led Jesus through his life to only do what God told him to do, the Spirit that led him to the point where he gets to John 17, verse 4, where he says, I've done your work. All the work you've given me to do, I did it. Are you going to be able to say at the end of your life that? God, I did what you wanted me to do. I didn't waste the time. I redeemed the time. You have to be under his control. You know if you're under his control, if you're submissive. You know you're under his control, if you're thankful. You know you're under his control when you're singing. And if you want to be under his control, sing. You want to be under his control? Be thankful. You want to be under his control? Start looking out for the best interests of other people and start submitting to them. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Start thinking about them. How can you serve? So if you're going to use your time, you've got to be careful, called, and under control. It's under God's control. Because here's the reality. That 6.30 a.m. phone call that my wife got, it will be made about each one of us at some point. We don't know if it'll be 6.30, but they're going to make that call. And you're going to come to the end of your life, there's going to be a time where the time is up. Will you have wasted your life? Will eternity be different as a result of your life? Will you have redeemed the time, made the most of the time? How will it go? You'll make decisions right now that will determine the answer to that question. Make the most of your time. And we're told how. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you a few moments in this service. We've got some time left. They might be the best moments that you spent all week. Just thinking about how did you spend 2014? Think about that. Because it's there. It's data for you to go through. And then how will 2015 go? Because that's potential. That's opportunity. How you'll use that time. And so I'm going to pray. We'll play some music. The worship team's going to come. And uh, we'll give you a couple moments just to talk to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to gather together in these moments. Thank you that you've given us this time to look at your word. I pray that the time that we spent in your passage would change the way that we use the rest of our time for the rest of our lives. God, I pray that you would change eternity as a result of your word and what's been shared, that your spirit would put it in our hearts, that your spirit would control our lives, that you'd guide our speech, that you'd guide our thoughts, that you'd guide our thankfulness, our submissiveness, our singing as we sing to you, not just even when we're corporately gathered, but just in our hearts as we get in our cars, as we walk out the door, as we live in our lives, that we would have joy, a joy that comes from you. And Father God, I pray that we would be engaged in the life that you've given us, not always thinking about the life that we think you should give us, we engage in the one that you have given us. We be fully present with our friends and our family. We be careful and attentive to the opportunities that you have before us, opportunities to tell people about your son Jesus, opportunities to be a blessing to this world. And I pray that you speak into each of our hearts as we spend time talking to you, that you just be very personal this morning. decisions